Hey, 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 welcome to the cost of the status quo. My name is Lindsay Lerner, and for years I've worked as a tour manager, founder of a co-working and production space for musicians, and travel business development and partnerships expert. I'm fascinated by digging into why people do what they do and how they're able to navigate challenges in unique ways. What I've observed over the last decade through my work and travel is that we often react to systems and constraints, not necessarily our truest selves. We then end up in places in our lives where we feel disconnected, dissatisfied, and ultimately confused. This is the cost of the status quo. Today, we're here with the one and only Sandra Enos of Giving Beyond the Box, a company that curates gift boxes that feature products that carry social missions like refugee resettlement, concern for the environment, empowering women, providing clean water, and much more. If that wasn't enough, Sandra is also a sociology professor at large, and Sandra and I met when I was a student at Bryant University. Unfortunately, I never had her as a professor, but she was a great mentor and now friend. Thank you so much for being here. I'm delighted to be here. I, I'm delighted to be here with you, especially. Absolutely. Are we calling in from down by the beach today? Well, uh, yeah, it's seven minutes from the beach. I'm here in, in lovely, historic Peacedale. You know, so uh, it's a lovely, just a beautiful day in Rhode Island. Let's take a moment, take a step back and share a little bit of your backstory. So could you tell me about where your parents are from and how the heck you got to good old Rhode Island? So um, I'm a native Rhode Islander. My, my mom and dad were uh, first generation immigrants. My dad from a little island in the Azores called San Miguel and my mother from just outside Quebec. She was French Canadian. They're a very working class, you know, work with their hands, worked in factories. And I grew up in that kind of, um, you know, household with... Um, my parents, especially my dad, had fought in the World War, and he was a great believer in the American dream. Although he didn't ask a lot of America except to work really hard and be devoted to his family and save enough money to have a house. You know, so he died before we really got to talk about my future. He died when I was 14. But I always felt he thought that I could do just about anything. But what was most important was that I'd be a nice person. He didn't care really that much that I was smart. Neither did my mother. Neither of them were impressed at all. You know, you leave that kind of household with a very kind of um, humble idea of yourself. So when you really get out to the real world and they kick you in the teeth because you are, in fact, not the most special person on the planet, you're not surprised at all. <laughs> you were ready. <laughs> exactly. Somebody asked me recently, you know, did you ever imagine that you'd become a college professor? I said, no, and neither did anybody in my family. I still think some of them thought I must have won the degree in a card game. That's how <laughs> <No>. it works, <laughs> right? That's how it works. Exactly. So, you know, I was lucky. I was lucky to go to Rhode Island College. It was completely tuition free when I went. You know, I was basically, my whole tuition, my tuition was subsidized by the taxpayers in Rhode Island, you know, with this different, you know, different philosophy at that time that, we want to educate working class kids to take their place in the economy. We think that's a really good investment. So I, you know, by the benefit of the generosity of Rhode Islanders, I got I got a BA and then somebody there thought I was smart enough to get a master's degree. And then I took 25 years off before I got a PhD. Wow. And when you were at Rhode Island College, were you studying sociology? Yeah, I, I took my first sociology class in my freshman year, my junior year. And from then on, I knew finally... I could study something where I could have ideas of my own. You know, I could become an independent critical thinker. I moved, I moved from being sort of like um, a monkey mind. You know, those of us who are good students can, can memorize and can impress our teachers with what we can repeat. But sociology, there was an opportunity to like really think about things that were really happening, things that I knew were true about my life. 
And so I just loved it. And I, you know, that's the only degrees I have, sociology, sociology, and sociology. Thank God there wasn't another degree. It would have been really something. (laughs) I love it. And so when you graduated from Rhode Island College, what were those options for you? Or was there rather a path that was pretty straightforward for you at that time? Because I went to school in the 60s, you know, in the early 70s, it was civil rights, ending Vietnam, you know, and giving back was the generational challenge caused, you know, created by John Kennedy. So one of the reasons that I kept in school was because I wanted to join the Peace Corps. You know, I wanted to be part of that young idealist generation. And then I was so concerned about American foreign policy that I decided to join VISTA instead. So I left Rhode Island College and um, worked as a VISTA volunteer in Alabama for a year in the, you know, the early days of the 1970s. And I was assigned to become a community organizer in a very rural, mainly black community in the South. You know, if you're 21 years old and your job is to end poverty, you know, but you don't have any money. <laughs> That's a heavy lift. It was a, it was a really heavy lift. And, you know, when I, when I think about that whole program, you know, the idea that we're going to send in young idealistic people into communities they know nothing about. That's what I was going to say. Is there any background for listeners who don't know anything about the AmeriCorps program or the VISTA program in general? Yeah. So the idea was that this was sponsored by the federal government and it continues to be so that people can go into communities that need and do what they do what they can. Now, when I was there, you could just go and do anything you wanted. You could rile up populations and revolt against the, against the bourgeoisie, but that was ended. And they finally decided to, uh, that we would all work with nonprofit organizations. We're working with Head Start as our sort of cover. But we had people, you know, in our group that were working to get women access to birth control and to work on food issues. And I worked on housing issues. I built houses when I was there in a federal program. But, you know, Lindsay, I think what was so interesting, and I think probably some of your comments have already pointed to that, you know, you look back sometimes when you're, you know, when you're my age, I'm in my 70s, and you look back to being like 21 and you're thinking, right, so here I was, this little Yankee. And I've got a degree in sociology, and I'm going to somehow think that I have something important to offer, you know, to other people. And, you know, people would ask us questions like all the time, like the chief of police in the little town would say, you came all the way here. Don't you have any problems at home you might want to attend to? Or people would say, aren't you pretty enough to get married? Like, what are you doing here? You know, we were just, it was just so hard for us to make ourselves like understood, you know, we're here to help you. And other people would say, are our problems like that bad, you know, that you had to come all, why do you think our problems are any worse than anybody else's? So on one hand, you think, oh, you know, I'm going to go and change the world. I know I'm going to be accepted by people who see me. I'm such a lovable kid. You know, uh, I'm devoting my, a year of my life and people greet you and they say, we're good. And what's the matter with you? You know, that's been a common thing on this podcast so far has been the audacity that we have when we're younger. And now that we're talking about it, I guess it's a bit more ignorance than. Yeah, it's audacity, it's ignorance. And it's just sort of, you know, being being open to those sort of experiences. Most of my friends didn't go to Vista. Nobody I talked to when I was 21 thought it was a good idea for me to go to Vista. Everybody's like, I don't know if you're familiar familiar with the movie Easy Rider, but it's about some hippies who are on a motorcycle. Everybody thought for sure that I was going to be shot in the head. Like everybody all the time, you know? Uh, Yeah. And it it was just, 
because it was such a strange environment for us to, you know, Yankees being in the middle of the South, you know, people would come over, like the white folks would come over and like leave a shotgun for us, you know, to protect ourselves, which was a good idea because we had no phone. There was no police like anywhere around, you know, I mean, there was like just nothing where we were just, we were like, and we never, we was like, oh no, we don't want a gun. <laughs> we don't want a gun. We're good. We're going to bake some cookies and go down to the community center and see if we can, you know, empathize. That's wild. And so you're in Alabama. You're attempting to do this work. You're physically building, literally building homes. And do you know what the other students that were in your graduating class were doing? Yeah, they were becoming school teachers and social workers and nurses and getting married and, you know, doing all those traditional things, none of which had like even an ounce of interest to me. Like nothing like that seemed. So it was sort of like, you know, like that, that book, uh, Hope in the Unseen. I knew that there was something other, you know, and I knew I wanted to make a contribution and I knew I was sort of, you know, analytical as well, you know, even through all this experience, which is, you know, some days were absolutely frightening in terms of our, our physical safety, you know, some days we were like really in danger. But like of all of that, I think I spent most of my life trying to figure out like, what are the, like, what are the holes in our system? And is that the hole I should poke myself into? What's going to work? It was an amazing year because I also got to see the great cultural superiority of those of us in the Northeast, you know, who are in constant rage against everybody else because they don't think like we do, you know? And I say that given all the politicization and stuff, but oh my God, that was just, that was just fascinating. And so after a year, you've got all this experience and this new perspective under your belt. How did you decide what was next? Well, when I was at Rick, somebody mentioned to me like about graduate school. And they said that they thought I should go to graduate school. Now, I had no idea even what that was, like no joke. I, I had no idea how professors got to be professors. So I applied to a number of graduate schools and Brown let me in for a four-year, like a four-year scholarship, like through my PhD, you know. And as much of, uh, much of a cultural clash it was going from, you know, my own background to going to Alabama, going from my own background to going to Brown was also such a cultural shock. I just had no, I had no idea about the hierarchy of universities. I had no idea what it meant to go to a selective school. I had no idea that those students were going to be so different than the students like I knew at Rhode Island College. There were 12 of us and we were welcome to, you know, welcome to the graduate students sherry hour at, uh, at Brown at Maxie Hall in the sociology department there. And uh, I'm just asking everybody, so where did you go to school? Everybody's like Princeton, blah, 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 blah you know, Yale, Pennsylvania. I just came back from a Fulbright, blah, 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 blah. What does your father do? Oh, he's a professor too. He's at Columbia. You know, what does your father do? And I was able to say, my God, thanks. He's dead. You know, that's, <laughs> wow. But before he died, he, you know, he installed bottled gas. He was a factory guy. He was a, he was a mechanic, you know, and people would say, in the most patronizing way, oh, how fascinating. 
I mean, it was just, and nobody was being mean. It was just my under socialization in terms of being in an atmosphere like that. And then at the end of the sherry hour, the chair took me aside and said to me, my gosh, you know, how far you've come. We read your essay and you come from this immigrant family and the Portuguese really know how to build a wall. Oh my gosh, they can really build a wall and they save so hard and they're such hardworking, sincere people. And what's that bread you can buy at the bakery? So I told them everything. And they're like, and so I was the first Portuguese student. I was the first student from Rhode Island College to get into graduate school, you know, in that program. So it was like first, and the chair was reminding me, you're the first of this. said, however, just in case, we've arranged extra help for you. So at any time, if you feel like you're struggling, just come to see me. We've got a tutor. We've got a couple of tutors. They're more than happy to help you. You know, and I didn't talk to anybody about any of this because I knew my parents wouldn't understand. You know, my relatives didn't understand. My uncle, Gene, thought that graduate school was somewhere you went if you failed out of classes, like it was summer school. <laughs> when I told him I was going to Brown, he's like, why would you go to Brown? They don't even have a football team. I mean, not to speak of, you know, so there's just nobody to talk to about this. But as a young person, you know, 22 years old, I was trying to think, well, if I get help, that sort of means that I need help and maybe that I shouldn't be here. So the only way to succeed was to work like as hard as I could, at least through the master's. I took all the classes, finished up my, my degree and all my requirements in about 12 months. I had a master's degree, which was supposed to take me two years because I just couldn't, couldn't stand the culture. I just couldn't feel like, you know, how hard do I have to work? Am I a fraud? You know, um, this is not an environment I'm going to excel in. You know, I don't want to spend so much time talking with professors about, you know, how many data elements I need to have and, you know, trying to study things they were interested in. I just was, I just wanted to get out into the real world and, and do something. And, you know, I would talk to, I would try to talk to them, you know, I've just been to Vista, you know, and I've been fighting poverty. They're like, we don't care about that. <laughs> Wow, that's eye-opening for sure, huh? And so you race through your master's degree, and then what? Avoid all social interactions with any professors, crank it out, and then what happens post that? So I took I took a federal civil service entrance exam because I thought, oh, I could work for the feds. So I, you know, I got a ninety-nine on that test. So, you know, which meant that if you, you know, you you then enter the management training. Department of Federal Civil Service, I could either go to West Virginia and work for Social Security or go to Chicago and work for the Bureau of Public Debt. <laughs> those, are, uh, those are enticing options. <laughs> <laughs> you, have, you don't know the half of it. And it was fascinating sociologically because they were trying to replace like people who had started like at the bottom of the civil service and like walked, you know, worked their way up to be managers with like college graduates. So there was like all this like resentment of like college graduates who are just gonna pop into management. And these organizations, Lindsay, were completely like rule bound. That wasn't quite what you were going for then? I mean, my God. But you know those times when you, when you do something and you just say, I can't imagine how anything could be like less right for me, you know? 
I mean, it was just, and it was Chicago, it was the middle of winter, I was all alone. You know, once again, in that arrogance of youth, I can go to Chicago, I'll make friends. I've always made friends my whole life. How bad can it be? And I was staying in this like little hovel with cockroaches. And it was probably one of the hardest, you know, years of my life. And then after that, I came back, picked up my degree at Brown University. And then I, you know, I started applying for jobs and I've been fruitfully employed ever since. You come back to Rhode Island after your terrible experience in Chicago, and then... Yep. So I began working for nonprofits. I began to work for nonprofits, like doing program evaluation for criminal justice programs. And then from there, I worked at the state prison for a while when the state was under federal court order. Just an amazing scene. And then from there, I went to child welfare for about six years. Then I went and I was doing computer things because somebody asked me to. I didn't have any training. And then from there, I worked in high tech for um, a couple of years working for a small data data management company, going all over the United States and selling uh, training packages to them. What happened to me then? I think I went back to corrections, did some more data management. Then I went to the, then when I was there, I, after that, I went to the state house. I worked for, uh, as a policy aide for the governor of the state for less than a year. Then I worked at URI. And during all of this time, I would be teaching classes at Rhode Island College as an adjunct professor in sociology. I would be teaching criminal justice and sociology of the family. Was there any difference between what you were teaching in the classroom and then obviously your personal life and your career was much different? Was that what was that experience like or that discrepancy rather? Yeah. You know, I loved to me like being able to like go and teach, you know, for like six hours. I would go four to seven and then seven to ten was absolutely like creative and engaging. And, you know, and because once again, I was teaching sociology of the family, I was working at child welfare. So you got to bring, you know, a very different perspective from the students. And I was teaching criminal justice. I was working at the state prison. So I was able in those classes to, you know, ask students about public policy questions, you know. Today at the Department of Corrections, we got to think about this policy. What do you all should we treat men and women alike in prison? Should women have access to the same programs that men do? You know, and the students would say yes. And I said, well, so do they have access to the same punishments? Like, do we want to shackle them when they go to the hospital and have a baby the way we shackle men when they go to the hospital? It's like, eh. so it, it helped me understand, you know, how engaging a classroom could be. To have these jobs, which are sort of interesting, but then to have the great creativity of being able to teach young people and being very interested in what they had to say, that was that was just a gift. I really enjoyed that. Absolutely. And then, so you find yourself, what, 50 and decide you go back to school? Yes, pretty close. And I had run into, everything's an accident. I had run into the chair of the department in a grocery store and she said to me, hey, Sandra, you know, we probably never told you this after teaching as an adjunct for 12 years, but your course evaluations are like the best in the department. You've got like, really, you're like really good at this, you know? Um, and I, I, because I didn't know, they just kept hiring me and nobody ever came to watch me teach ever. I never had a classroom evaluation ever, you know? So I said, well, yeah, okay. So I'm a good teacher. What, what do you make of that? She said, you should go back and get your PhD. 
And I flashed, I flashed back to like being at Brown and thinking, oh my God, academic BS, I could never do it. So I sat on that for about two years and then I went to UConn and I took a class because it would be a different, a different university, you know, state university, uh, younger faculty. They were, they were known, you know, researchers on HIV, which I worked on and, and a number of other issues, prisons, incarceration. So I went and I took a class and it was a qualitative methodology class, which is a sociology, you know, anthropologist too, you know, that it's all about trying to see how other people are understanding the world. So I did qualitative sociology and I looked at the parenting program at the women's prison to see how, how women there defined what it meant to be a mother while you're incarcerated. And that was fascinating. I got an A in the class. I just loved it. It was about as intellectually on fire as I had been in years. And then I applied for admission to the school and that eventually became my, you know, my doctoral thesis. What do you think the ultimate difference was between the status quo that existed in academia when you were at Brown versus at UConn, other than obviously the institution is different? So it's the institution, it's the, it's the culture. You know, it's like 20 years like later when I was at Brown, there were no ethnic studies, there was no women's studies. There was none of this, um, people are important to listen to. You know, so there was like none of that. They were very good at like older adults pursuing education. You know, they were not so focused at like our students have to be scholars. We want to get them into Chicago. We want to get them into the best programs. There was really not that much emphasis. The real emphasis was let's let's ask some interesting questions, you know, questions that matter, you know. So, so I was, you know, I was all about that. Definitely. And then so you get to be a professor post that. Yep. They let me be a professor. Yep. I was lucky enough to get a job at Rhode Island College. I was there for eight years. And then I, I went to Bryant for my last 14 years, 13 years. Yeah. It's kind of a, it's kind of a mess of a career, but that's, that's what happened. You know, you take a wrong path, you just learn a little bit more about yourself. You know, that as much as they say, you know, what sometimes you'll have to do anything just to put money and food on the table, which I've done. I've worked in factories. That was all my summer work, factories and factories and factories of waitressing. But even in those jobs, there was a certain like dignity to them, you know, and a certain respect for people who had been doing this like all their lives. It's a So not to breeze over your time as a professor, but in the last couple of minutes we have here, I would really love to hear more about what you've done since. I had run little pop-up marketplaces at Bryant during the holidays, and I would always invite social entrepreneurs, like, you know, Providence Granola, Beautiful Day, River's Edge, and I would see how well those went. I would see how, how happy consumers were, like faculty, students, and staff, to buy a good that gave back to the community. And we did one year where we did really, really well. And I was trying to figure out like, well, how do I replicate this magic? I don't want to run pop-up markets for the rest of my life. But can I put together products and boxes so that people feel wonderful about giving the gift? I want to give this gift to you, Lindsay, because I know you care about the empowerment of women and you care about welcoming immigrants into our community. I want to give you this gift. And so for me, you know, I as the gift giver get to give you that. I feel great. You were receiving the gift, think, wow, she really knows me. She knows what I care about. She wants to celebrate it. And then there's the benefit of, you know, all the giving back that it does to communities, whether it's a social enterprise or, a, 
you know, a BIPOC-owned business, a woman-owned business, local farmers, Rhode Island artists. So the idea there is to sort of build boxes that, that, that serve a lot of audiences, but also to build bridges, you know, so that people in the, let's say, in the white community understand that there's a way to connect to the BIPOC community through these boxes to support these, you know, these small businesses, you know, to build a, to build a community that way. So, yeah, so that's been fun. And to me, it's not, re, you know, it's not retired. It's like repurposing, you know, it's like <laughs> retreading, you know. You know, I get to surround myself with people who are working really hard to make this the kind of community we want to live in, whether it's small businesses or people who are working on refugees or homelessness or women's issues. I mean, no matter how hard we could work, we could never do any, everything. So the important part is to support each other, you know, every way we can. If we want to live in a decent community, that sort of village that raises children and raises each other up, we don't have any other options but to rely on each other. Are there any trends that you've observed since being in the business world, whether it's small business, entrepreneurship, startups, however you want to view it, any trends that you've observed that you'd like to see changed in that capacity? Well, certainly, you know, Amazon, I think, should just be ashamed of themselves. I'm worried about like the loss of businesses to 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 places like Amazon, the loss of community. I'm worried about that. You know, I'm worried about not to get too political, but a Supreme Court that is increasingly, you know, divergent from what Americans, what we, what the country really wants to see. You know, I'm worried about that. On the other hand, I'm you know opt- I'm increasingly excited about you know movements like uh, Local Return Rhode Island, which is trying to build up the local economy and like, you know, people like yourselves as well, you know, thinking about, you know, what is all this about? You know, how do we get it? How do we get each other on, you know, on a path here so that we're walking towards some good end? Exactly. Exactly. So would you say, are there any specific skills that you've learned, whether it's now on this more entrepreneurial track or perhaps from being a sociologist for, lo- for so long? Are there any tips, tricks, habits that you use daily or in, you know, you know, a course of a year or a course of your, your whole life that have really made a difference in that, that you've learned along the way? I think the, something I learned along the way, and maybe this was after I left being a sociologist, sociology professor, because it's such an isolating kind of world, self-referential. I mean, before I launched this little business, I talked to 72 different people about whether or not it was a good idea and to continue to improve the idea because increasingly you just realize that you just don't know. You're at home in some communities, but not at home in others, you know, so just asking people as, and you do this like wonderfully well, informational interviewing, you know, just to find out what's on people's mind, how your own ideas can be improved. I think, I think that listening, that humility, that visionary thinking is like just important. And we can't, once again, we can't do any of that alone. It's just not a it's not a game of solitaire, you know. It's just <laughs> we just need to connect in, in as many ways as we can. On that note, specifically, we do ask every guest these two questions. I think it ties in nicely here. What is the worst piece of advice that you've ever gotten? And on the flip side of that, what is the best piece of advice that you've ever gotten? Right, both are challenging questions. I think the worst piece of advice was a friend of mine when I was telling her that I was thinking about going to graduate school, reminded me that there were already 10,000 unemployed sociologists and the world didn't need another one. And if I wanted to get a degree, I should get an MBA. You know, when she was a sociologist, she was a fully tenured professor. 
So, uh, you know, I ignored that advice. And probably the best advice was that story I told you earlier about there's something about you that makes you a good teacher. Maybe you should explore it. And that was more of a suggestion than her saying you really should go and get a PhD as soon as you can. So those two, those two things were, you know, really launched me on a path that I wouldn't have never, ever, ever taken up, ever, which is, you know, the power of making suggestions to each other when you say, you are so articulate, you know, you need to write a book or, oh my God, you should take that idea and like really build it out, whatever it is, you know, because you never, you never know how important that is to someone. Without a doubt. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for sharing all of that. Absolutely. I hope it made some sense. I didn't have an outline or slides or no footnotes. So I apologize to my sociology colleagues. <laughs> Nothing I said was properly cited. I apologize. We can add it in in the show notes. We'll have proper citations. Don't you worry <laughs> about a thing. That's great. Thank you again for, for being here. Absolutely. Absolutely.